Welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltuna.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona. And now, here's Derek with the message. I want to begin by reading an excerpt from the book, The Life of D.L. Moody by his son. D.L. Moody, many of you will know, it was a, a preacher in the mid to late 1800s who saw many people come to Christ, a very effective ministry, uh, and his son wrote a book about kind of his life, uh, sort of as a memoir. And so I want to read this, uh, this excerpt to you uh, as, uh, by way of uh, introduction. It says, the year 1871 was a critical one for, in Mr. Moody's career. He realized more and more how little he was fired by personal acquirements for his work. An intense hunger and thirst for spiritual power were aroused in him by two women who used, uh, used to attend the meetings and sit on the front seat. He could see by the expression on their faces that they were praying. At the close of services, they would say to him, we have been praying for you. Why don't you pray for the people, Mr. Moody would ask. Because you need the power of the Spirit, they would say. I need the power. Why? Mr. Moody, in relating the incident years later, I thought I had power. I had the largest congregations in Chicago, and there were many conversions. I was, in a sense, satisfied. But right along, those uh, two godly women kept praying for me, and in their earnest talk about anointing for special service set me to thinking. I asked them to come and talk with me, and they poured out their hearts in prayer that I might receive the filling of the Holy Spirit. There came a great hunger into my soul. I did not know what it was. I began to cry out as I never did before. I really felt that I did not want to live if I could not have this power for service. I was crying all the time that God would fill me with his spirit. Well, one day in New York City, oh, what a day, I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It is almost too sacred an experience to name. Paul had an experience of which he never spoke for 14 years. I can only say that God revealed himself to me, and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. I went on to preaching again. The sermons were not different. I did not present any new truths, and yet hundreds were converted. I would not now be placed back where I was before that blessed experience if you should give me all the world. It would be as the small dust of the balance. I don't know what happens inside of you as I read that story. What happens inside of me is that there's this intense hunger for an experience of God like that. An intense hunger for more of God's presence, more of an experience of the Lord. And the reason is I believe and I live out of a belief that there's always more of God. That whatever we've experienced, whatever uh, level we've engaged with God, there's always more. That there's always more of God to experience. And so when I hear a story, what it does is stir me to deeper things of the Lord. Now I know that there are uh, any number of ways that you may react to something like this. Some of you may hear the story and you may be stirred to deeper hunger like I am. Some of you may hear this story and be like, nah, okay, I'm not stirred at all. That doesn't really matter to me. Or there may be some in the middle of that. Some of you maybe uh, begin to internally rationalize why you couldn't or shouldn't expect to experience 
the Lord this way. Like maybe this is an out of bounds thing or maybe this, maybe this guy's crazy and that's just sort of one of those crazy things. Or maybe you begin to say, well, that kind of experience is only for the professional Christian, the people who do this for a living. Whatever the, the, the way that you respond, it says a lot about your, the nature of your relationship with Jesus. How many of you have had babies or been around babies, little babies? Number, yeah, there's a number. <laughs> about you're this close, this close. You, week and a half or less? Okay. Well, one of the th- questions that you're going to see happening, you guys know this, like right after a baby's born, what happens? The baby loses weight right away, right? Baby is born, baby loses weight. And the biggest concern for the doctors in that stage is what? Are they eating, right? Like every time, are they eating? Are they hungry? Are they eating? Are they eating, right? The reason is because for the baby, literally food is life. If a baby stops eating when it's born at, our our kids were born in the eight pounds-ish range, they lose weight really fast and it becomes very, very dangerous. And so eating is life. And if a baby is not eating and doesn't have any hunger, it's a sign that something's really wrong, right? In the same way, for those of us who follow Jesus, the presence of God, the Spirit of God, is literally life. It's literally life. And in the same way as it is with the baby, if we are not hungry, it's an indication that something is wrong. Something is way wrong. There's something about hunger that's critical for people who follow Jesus. And what I believe is so often true is that we live in a culture that's so full of things that want to satiate our hunger. Do we not? There's so many options. There's so many things, so many distractions that make such high promises for what they will do for our lives, and yet they leave us empty. And what we discover is that our hunger has waned. Have you ever been in this place? We're beginning this series today that I'm calling Hungry for God. The scriptures constantly point us to a life that is ever pursuing of more of God. As you read scripture cover to cover, the invitation is always to taste and see that the Lord is good. There's always an invitation to more of the Lord. And in fact, it puts, puts in front of us, Scripture over and over puts in front of us people who pursue God this way. Let me read a couple of examples. David says in Psalm 84.2, he says, My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. That's different than our worship sometimes, isn't it? Can you imagine what that looks like? My heart cries out that there's a deep stirring for more of God. Or Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 6. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. He says there's a blessing for those who hunger and thirst for God's kingdom to come, God's righteousness to come, that hunger in the kingdom is a good thing and that the lack of hunger is a problem. 
my hope in this series, I'm going to just level with you. It's very simple. If you haven't figured it out yet, my hope in this series is to stir in all of us a deep hunger for more of the Lord. That we would be content with everything that God gives and yet we wouldn't be satisfied until we have all that he has to offer. And my hope is that we wouldn't be able to just be content and sit idly by and just sort of wait based on what we've had of the Lord, but that we would be ever pursuing for more of the Lord. That's my hope. That if you're someone who used to be hungry for God and you found yourself in a space where you no longer hunger for more of the things of God, that your heart would be kindled again and that you would be stirred to a deeper hunger. And if you're someone who already has hunger for the Lord, that you would continue to press even deeper into levels of hunger for the Lord. And maybe if you're someone who's never had a desire for the things of God, that your heart would be stirred. Or as John Wesley says, those of you who know Wesley, your heart was strangely warmed. That'd be my hope for you. That's what I'm after here. No secret. There's no like trick. My hope is to stir your hunger for the Lord And as we begin this series, I want to talk today about seeking God first. Seeking God first. I'm calling this message, I struggle to want more of God. Because I think that's where a lot of us are. I struggle to want more of God. So would you pray with me and then we'll look at scripture. So Holy Spirit, we just acknowledge that you are here, you are present And God, that you'll come in greater measure where you're desired. And so we want you here. We want you here. And even if we struggle to desire, I pray on behalf of this church and I say, Lord, we want you here. We want you to come. We want you to have your way. God, I pray that you would put in each one of us a deep hunger for more of you, that for things of you that only you can satisfy. Would you put your words in my mouth, Lord, enable me to speak as I should, and put power on this message, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to look at uh, Matthew chapter 6, and primarily at verse 33, but because I'm always also trying to teach you how to read the Bible well, It's irresponsible to just grab one verse out and say, we're going to just talk about this. We're going to read the whole section, but we're primarily going to key in on this uh, verse 33, okay? So we're going to begin at verse 25 of chapter 6, and here's what we read. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. And yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? 
For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. And this is our verse. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You know, this passage of Scripture comes out of one of the most famous sermons in all the world. It's the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus preaches. And it's right in the middle. And you'll notice that it started with the word therefore. And for those of you who were in Sunday school, what do you do with the word therefore? You see what it's there for, right? I just taught you guys something. We can end the message right there. Um, right before this, Jesus says, you cannot serve both God and money. And he says, therefore, as if to say, you can only serve one thing. You can't serve two things. You can only serve one thing. And then he goes on to say, uh, why worry? He says, do not worry. Do not worry about food, drink, clothes. And the Greek word here uh, for worry is in the verb form. It's the same root as the noun form in Matthew 13, verse 22, which says this. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. The root here conveys a sense of distraction. This word comes from a sense of distraction. And so in, uh, in chapter 13, distractions or worries choke out the fruitfulness of what God intends for us. And in chapter 6, distractions cause anxiety and worry. It comes from the concept of distraction. And what, what Jesus is saying is that we're constantly tempted to distraction that keeps us from being who God created and intended us to be. But we're not doing that intentionally, are we? Any of you say, hey, I'm going to, today, my plan is to just live distracted. I mean, maybe if we're really sad, right, or we're really depressed, it's like I need to be, just be distracted, right? But most of us don't go about life saying, my goal for life today is just to be really distracted. It sort of happens to us, right? We all start out with the best of intentions, don't we? Don't we start out with like, I'm going to live for God, I'm going to read my Bible regularly. I'm going to set aside time to spend with Jesus regularly. I'm going to pray every day. I'm going to give generously on a regular basis. I'm going to serve faithfully. I'm going to share my faith boldly. I mean, maybe we're not there yet, right? We're like thinking about sharing faith maybe. But like we want to share our faith boldly. All of the best intentions. Don't we have the best of intentions? We always start out with the best of intentions. But Jesus warns us that it's distractions, that it's the distractions of life that choke out all of our best intentions. We start out with the best of intentions, but he knows that we're so easily distracted. Are we not? I mean, think about all the things that keep you from your best intentions. All the things that keep you from doing what you want to do. I don't know about you, but it seems like every time I try to start a new habit, a new spiritual discipline, something to engage deeper in relationship with God, immediately things come up to fight against it. Has that been your experience? Have you had that experience? Like where you're like, hey, you know, I'm going to set aside this hour of quiet time. I want to spend quiet time with Jesus every day. And so, 
6 to 7 a.m., nothing's ever happening. It's always open, so I'm going to set aside 6 to 7 a.m. And then what happens? Next week, your work says, hey, we need you to start coming in at 6. You're like, for years, you've never needed me that early. And now all of a sudden, I'm trying to press into my relationship with Jesus, and it comes up. Or you say, hey, you know, I I always have my 30-minute lunch break, and I'm going to take my 30-minute lunch break. I'm going to take the first 10 minutes to, uh, to pray. Right? Because it's available, and I can spend the first 10 minutes praying, and I eat really fast, and so it'll work out. And then what happens, right? All of a sudden, it's like, hey, we're going to have working lunches all this week. We never do that. What do you mean we're going to have working lunches? Has that been your experience? When we started, Jerry and I started uh, maybe four years ago, implementing a 24-hour Sabbath in our life. And so... Many of you know we Sabbath from 3 o'clock on Friday afternoon to 3 o'clock on Saturday afternoon. And so everything, you know, we, we put it there on purpose because we were like, not much happens at this time, right? You know, so let's just put it there and, and, and we'll start doing it. Can I tell you, like shortly after we put this in place, everybody wanted to do stuff on Friday nights and Saturday mornings. Have you had that experience? It's like every time you press in and you have the best of intentions... Something comes against it. And, of course, we know that we have an enemy to our souls that would love nothing more than to destroy us, right? If this is news to you, there's an enemy to your souls that would love nothing more than to destroy you. But sometimes it's just distraction. Sometimes we're just so distractible, right? You know, squirrel, right? One laugh, thank you. Makes me feel better. All of our distractible impulse... It keeps us from our best of intentions, doesn't it? We all want to to have deeper hunger for God, and, and yet it's all of these things that surround us that choke out our hunger and our attention. Let me ask you this. You all have one of these, right? A pocket distractor? You guys have one? How many times have you taken this thing out of your pocket just to look one thing up, and 40 minutes later, right, You're like, man, I've been scrolling Facebook for a long time, and I don't remember why I got this out of my pocket. Right? Or or (laughs) we had this happen just the other day. She's got the phone out to check. I think we were looking for some place to go eat when we were in Denver, and and she pulled it out, and there were like five people had texted her. And so, you know, she's driving along, responding to texts. Or she's, I'm driving. She's not driving. (laughs) She's not driving. I'm driving along. She's looking, checking these texts, and I'm starting to go, I'm not, I've never been here before. I don't know where we're going. Ten minutes later, I was like, hey, have you figured out where we're going yet? She's like, oh, sorry. I was just responding to text. Have you had that happen? Like, the best of intentions, and we get sidetracked. And we carry something in our pocket that does it to us. Maybe a a more direct application of this. I mean, if you think about it, that, the phone tells you how, like, you guys get that up, update once a week, the, the notification of shame. You spend three hours a day. If you have an iPhone, you get one of these. I don't know about you Android people. But, like, if you have an iPhone, like, for me, it's like every Sunday about now. It's like, hey, just so you know, you spent three hours a day on your phone this last week. But maybe a more direct application of the way that we get distracted and our time goes away is, how many of you have ever tried to come up with a place to eat? Like, you know, we, we're like, well, where are we going to eat the, Saturday night? You guys know this one. 
I don't know, Champs, Red Robin, Chili's. Well, I don't want to go to Red Robin. The last time I was there, I had a rock in my French fry. <laughs> that actually happened. <laughs> I think I chipped my tooth, but I got free donuts out of it. I don't know. You know, and then it's like, well, I, I don't really want to go to Champs. We went there last time. And after 10 to 15 minutes of arguing, right, what do we do? Well, let's go to the same place we always go. And we just end up so just distracted from all, we waste so much time, don't we? The thing I'm trying to show you here is that there are so many things in our lives that are distractions that draw us away from our hunger for God. So many things. If you have experienced the goodness of God, if you've encountered his radical love for you, it's not usually that you intended to wander or intended to try to satisfy your hunger by a million other things. It's usually just distraction. These are things that Jesus calls the worries of life. We set aside our hunger for God and we decide, well, this is all I'm going to have, right? We get satisfied by all the other things of life, except for they don't really satisfy, but we're sort of out of time and energy. And we just decide, well, this is all of God that I'm going to have. This is it. This is all I get, and that's okay. And we just decide that it's okay that we've got all of God that we can ever have. But there's an implication in what Jesus says. Look at verse 32. He says, For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. It just seems very matter-of-fact, right? He just says it. He's like, all the pagans run after all these things, and you have a heavenly father that knows that you need them, so just seek first his kingdom. But there's something else here. The implication is that if you're still running after distractions, even though you were invited to seek first the kingdom, it's an indicator that something's amiss. Do you see that? Like he says, People who have experienced the love and the provision of God chase, uh, people who have not experienced the love, the provision of God, chase after the distractions of the world. They chase after them. And by the way, they're not insignificant things. Food matters. Clothes, last I checked, matter. Right? We all got dressed to come here. So they're not insignificant things. But he's talking about Pagans run after these things as of the utmost importance. He says, but not you, because you know that you have a heavenly father who takes care of you. And so you're free to pursue as of utmost importance the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Jesus says pagans chase after those things, but not you. But what do I do if I do chase after them? Do you see that there's an implication there? Jesus says, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. We talked in the fall about the kingdom sort of at length, but for those of you who weren't here for that or have forgotten, let me sort of explain what the Bible means when it says kingdom. When scripture refers to the kingdom of God, it's not talking about a place. 
it's not talking about, well, the kingdom of God is the church, or the kingdom of God is Israel, or the kingdom of God is heaven, or the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, when the Bible talks about it, is God's right to rule and reign. God's authority to rule and reign in a time and in a place. So the kingdom of God extends as far as God gets his way. That's what the Bible means when it says the kingdom of God. So seek first God's right to rule and reign. So, but for some reason, God doesn't always get his way. Have you noticed this? Like in this morning, in your own life, has God already not gotten his way? You know, you rolled out of the bed the wrong side and you were upset and you didn't live the way that God would invite you to live, right? God doesn't always get his way for some reason under the sovereignty of God. That when Jesus showed up, the kingdom of God broke into this world. And yet, for reasons unknown to us, God made it so that his kingdom could be resisted. His rule, his reign could be resisted. If you read the parables, it speaks to this. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of seeds. In other words, you could overlook it. You could miss it. And yet when it grows up, it's a tree in which all the birds can roost, right? You wouldn't miss it then. And everybody is welcome into it. Do you see that? So when Jesus shows up, when he starts... The kingdom of God breaks in, and yet it can be resisted. But when Jesus returns, the kingdom of God will be irresistible. There will be no other will. It's only God's will at that point. So we live into this space in between the times where we are a people who have surrendered our lives to the will of God. There will come a day when everybody has to surrender to the will of God. We have surrendered our lives to the will of God by surrendering our lives to Jesus. And Jesus and, and the Father give us the Holy Spirit that we might actually be empowered to live lives that reflect the kingdom, the rule and reign of God. Does that make sense? Are we tracking? This is your recap of like an eight-week series in the fall. And so the people of, of the in-between times are known as the church. In the Bible, the ecclesia, the called out ones. We are the people who live and demonstrate the reality of the kingdom now. And so to be distracted and to be uh, led to other things that distract us is actually against who we are called to be as people of the, of the people of God. And so this is the context for seeking first the kingdom. As followers of Jesus, we are kingdom people. We're not people who get distracted by things that we know uh, our Heavenly Father will provide. We're not people who worry about things. We know God is going to give us the things we need. We worry about our Father's business. That's what it is to be kingdom people. We're a people who seek first God's rule and reign in every situation, which means we are a people who live with an ever-increasing desire for God's presence and his nearness. We're a people who aren't satisfied with the absence of God's will being done in the world. Does that make sense? Like, there's, and all of us, this, this takes shape in different ways, doesn't it? Some of us, we see people living below the poverty line and it breaks our heart. And it's like, in God's kingdom, this ought not to be. And so we live working on behalf of the poor. Turns out Jesus cares deeply about that. We find ourselves as people going, in God's kingdom, there is no cancer. There is no sickness. And so we pursue healing. We pursue wholeness. In God's kingdom, 
There are no demonized people. And so we pursue freedom for people. Turns out all those things are the things Jesus was doing. And that's the invitation for us. That we're not satisfied with the absence of God's kingdom. With the absence of God's will being done. And I think a lot of us probably go, yeah, that sounds exciting. I'm all for it. Sign me up. How do I do that? Except for, wait a minute, I'm still distracted. What do we do when we find ourselves still distracted? How many of you are familiar with the meaning of the word liturgy? Just show of hands. You've heard the word. How many of you know what it means? Less hands. <laughs> Great. Um, liturgy is a word we use to describe the order of how a service happens. Okay? So every church has a liturgy. Uh, and we construct liturgy, churches construct liturgy to shape you. Do you know that? Like when you show up into a, a church's service, the liturgy is constructed to shape you in a certain way. So if you think about the liturgy of this church, and we actually do think about it. I, maybe it doesn't seem, I don't know, sometimes I feel like people are like, do we just make this up as we go? No, we don't make it up as we go along. If you think about what we do, we're doing things to intentionally shape you. So if you show up here over a period of time, you should become a certain kind of person. So we begin by reading a psalm, right? You might go, well, I guess they just have to read the Bible. No, we are reading the psalm that is in the lectionary. We're reading the same psalm that churches all across the world are reading every week. And the point of this is to draw us back into the fact that we are part of a global family of people who are following Jesus. So we read a psalm, but it's also the, the Israel, Israel's hymn book. So we're actually leading ourselves into worship by reading a psalm to prepare our hearts. We do that on purpose because we're moving into worship. Now you're like, well, why do we always start with worship? Why can't we do worship later? We, we could, except for we believe that the primary function of a human being is to worship God. So we start there. We start by corporately worshiping God, collectively, all of us, worshiping God. It's putting action to the thing that God has designed us to do. It's why worshiping with your whole body matters. Like, this isn't the crazy people thing, right? No, like, I, if I do like this, I'm surrendering all of who I am to God. It's not so that somebody might look and go, look at him. He must be spiritual. He's got his hands up. You know, when people get on the floor during worship, it's expressive. It's on purpose. We're demonstrating the thing that we were created to do. We worship. Then we move into this time of communion. We remember that we don't naturally want to worship. At least we don't naturally want to worship God. But it's only because of Jesus, who has invited us into the Father's story by his body and blood, that we become people who worship God. We do this every week to remember the story we're a part of. You see where this is going? We open the scriptures together. And we believe that when we do what we're doing right now, that God speaks. That God is speaking to you through his word. That his word is alive. We expect that God is going to speak to you. And we always end our time with invitation to prayer. Some of you are like, that's a little bit weird. No, the people that we want to become is people who are responsive. When God speaks, we don't just say, thanks a lot, I'm going out to lunch. But we are a people who respond. This is our liturgy. You just, some of you have never seen that ever worked out. But at a broad level, our liturgy is constructed intentionally to create a people who worship God 
expect his tangible nearness and presence and respond to it. So if you hang out here for a period of time, what should happen is you should become someone who more naturally wants to worship God, who more naturally is aware of his nearness and his presence, and who naturally wants to respond when he speaks. It's designed to do that. Some of you are like, man, you think about all that stuff. Every church does this. Every church has a liturgy, right? Some of you grew up in a Catholic tradition. What's the end of the Catholic tradition? The Eucharist. The whole thing builds to the Eucharist, right? If you think about the churches you've been a part of, the liturgy is aimed to construct something in you. For most of us, when we think about our hunger for God and the fact that we get distracted, what we have is a life liturgy problem. Our lives reflect a liturgy that doesn't lead us to become hungry people. We haven't structured the liturgy of our lives to reflect the desire we have. We want to have this ever-increasing hunger for God. We want to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. But the liturgy that we've set up leads us somewhere else. Have you seen this in your life? And most of us, the fact of the matter is, most of us have never thought about our life as liturgy. So our life liturgy is accidental at best imposed at worst, right? Like, we just go about life powerless. Think about how most of you wake up. What's the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning? So many of us have this laying by our bed, and we get it, and we go, wonder what's going on in Facebook now. Wonder what's going on in the news now. Or if we don't do that, we turn the TV on, right? And we flip to our news channel, and we start watching there. But have you ever thought about what happens to you by way of formation when you start your day that way? Probably you feel very overwhelmed, very depressed, and very angry. And so you get up and you're depressed and overwhelmed and you're angry and anxious. And then you have a fight with your spouse because you're anxious and everything turn, like just sets you off. And you know, then, then your kids get in the mix and they're not doing the thing you want to do and you just project all your anxiety on them and you get out the door and you're a bitter, angry person. And then you're like driving, you're like, I got to get it together. Got a meeting with my boss, and that's not going to go very well. And you meet with your boss, and it's contentious. And by the time you get to lunch, you are the furthest thing from someone hungry for God. Have you seen this? Most of us have never thought about the liturgy our life uh, is, and we've never intentionally constructed it. And by the time we get to the end of the day, We've never made any space for God. There's no space for God. I've filled it with anxiety and rage and anger. And even though I have my best intentions of being someone who is hungry for God, they got hijacked because I never thought about the liturgy that I've created in my life. We have a liturgy problem in our lives. But what if we chose something different? What if we chose a different path? What if today, you know, you're going to get up tomorrow and it's Monday. Many of you are going to have to go to school. You're going to have to go to work. What if this afternoon you said, I want to be someone who's hungry for God. And so I start today constructing my liturgy for tomorrow. What if we started today? 
And what if we said, you know what, I'm going to be the kind of person, I know I'm supposed to be a kingdom person who's aware of God's presence and God's activity all through the day. I know I'm supposed to, they keep saying at church to transform the spaces I inhabit. I don't really know what that means other than to say, I know that it means that somehow when I show up, something's supposed to be different. I know that's who I'm supposed to be. That God has invited me to co-create in the world, to to redeem all things. That he's invited me to help bring the kingdom. We co-labor with God. I know that's what God is asking of me. I know that's the invitation. And what if we let that frame how we constructed our life liturgy? What if he said, I want to be a hungry person. I want to live into hunger for God. How will we start our day? Probably we'd put our phone somewhere else, wouldn't we? Probably we maybe would take the TV out of the room. But I love watching TV before I go to bed. Yeah, me too. Maybe we would take the TV out if we can't restrain ourselves. Maybe we would start the day with prayer. Maybe we would lay our Bible wide open right by the nightstand where we used to have our phone. And we would start the day with a hunger for God. Maybe we would start the day by praying, God, would you make me hungry for your presence? Would you make me desiring of your presence? God, I want to see you everywhere I go. And maybe that would become our heart cry. And maybe now when we come downstairs, we don't fight with our spouse. We actually see that God is doing something in our spouse, and we can affirm that. And maybe we pray to bless our kids before they go. And as we show up to work, we're expecting that God is already there and he's already doing something. We show up to class, we know God is already at work. And we're hungrily waiting to see, God, what are you doing? I want to join you. Can you imagine how if we changed the liturgy of our lives to reflect the desires we have, that we might actually become different people? And if we did this for like, I don't know, more than a day? What if we try to do this for like two days or five days? What if we generated a habit of every morning we started? Before we got out of bed, we didn't grab the phone. We grabbed God's word and we just read just for a minute. We asked God to show up to to make us hungry for his presence. What would it do to your life? What kind of person would you become? See, this is the exact stuff that led me to cut off my cable news subscription 15 years ago. I recognized I was being more discipled by my cable news choice than I was by Jesus. And as a follower of Jesus, that just felt wrong to me. So I cut it off. Turns out that was the only thing I cared about on cable. We cut cable shortly after. It's nothing on TV. It's the very same reason I took Facebook Facebook off of my phone. Because I recognized that the Facebook algorithm was doing more discipling of me than Jesus. And that seemed wrong to me. It seemed like I wanted to be hungry for God, not hungry for snakes hanging from light poles. That's what it feeds me. (laughs) Alligator attacks. That probably says something about me. And you guys can debrief that later. Because here's the deal. We can never be the people God calls us to be. Unless we are people in every area, in every situation of our lives, 
who seek first the kingdom of God, the rule and the reign of God, who are hungry for everything he has and who desire to work with our Father to see the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That's the point of this series. That's what we're after. We want to be people who are hungry for God's presence. That we might be aware of what he's doing in the world, that we might be able to co-create with him. That's the invitation to being a follower of Jesus. Thank you again for choosing the Vineyard Altoona podcast. We're so excited to see how God will release his kingdom in and through you today for the glory of Jesus Christ. With this, be blessed, and we'll see you next time.